choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Brisbane, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 249 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 12, Moonwalk 1, Part 3. Close out. Continuing from the previous episode, Pete Conrad and Al Bean were entering the final phase of their first moonwalk. Up above, every two hours, a tiny, unblinking star appeared in the eastern sky above Intrepid. It ascended to its zenith, then vanished in the west. It was bright enough for Pete Conrad to see with the naked eye. The star was Yankee Clipper, carrying Dick Gordon on a 38-hour solo voyage around the moon. Before the mission, Gordon had wondered whether he would think of the Earth and feel his awesome separation from humanity. Instead, he savored his aloneness. But mostly, he was too busy to think about anything besides the flight plan. However, when there was a lull, his thoughts turned to his friends on the ocean of storms. Gordon envied Conrad and Bean more than he could say. On Apollo 11, Mike Collins said he was perfectly happy going 98.9% of the way. But that wasn't how Gordon felt. Walking on the moon, not orbiting it, was the name of the game. It was as simple as that. And it had been his goal from the day he joined the astronaut corps. Gordon rationalized his position, telling himself that down the line, on one of the later missions, he would get his chance. But when he watched Conrad and Bean climb into that lunar module and pull away, he wished he were going with them. His crewmates knew it as well. Conrad had said he wished the lunar module held three people so they could all land together. Of course, that was not going to happen. When Conrad steered the lunar lander to a pinpoint landing, Gordon was listening, and as the dust settled on the ocean of storms, he radioed congratulations and told his friends to have a ball. On the next orbit, when he flew over the landing site, he was ready to try to spot Intrepid on the surface. Unlike Mike Collins, Gordon knew exactly where to look and he knew the navigation was so good that all he had to do was tell the computer to point the sextant right at the snowman. At the proper moment, the optics whirred into position, and there, just off the rim of the surveyor crater, he saw a point of light with a needle-like shadow, and he knew he had found them. I have intrepid, he announced to Capcom Ed Gibson, 
And, as he got closer, he could almost convince himself he could see details, like four landing legs sticking out from the descent stage, though he knew the sextant wasn't powerful enough for that. He was in the middle of reporting Intrepid's position when he spotted another point of light nearby. I see surveyor! I see surveyor! Gordon was jumping up and down, as if it was possible to do so in zero-g. If he could not make the first pinpoint lunar landing, then he had been the one to discover that it had been a success. He told Gibson that it was almost as good as being there. Of course, while Conrad and Bean took their moonwalk, Dick Gordon was there vicariously. Thanks to Mission Control's relay, he could listen to his friends as they bounced along. At one point, as the two moonwalkers wrestled with a bulky piece of gear, Gordon couldn't help but laugh at what he was hearing. Later, he would tell his crewmates how funny it was when they were struggling with the equipment. In the last hour of the first moonwalk, Gordon prepared for his most important task of the day, a burn of Yankee Clipper's SPS engine to adjust his orbit. To better understand the purpose of this burn, imagine yourself standing on a fixed platform in space. You would see that the moon slowly turns as it orbits, at exactly the rate needed to keep the near side pointed at Earth. You would also notice that the orbit of Yankee Clipper stayed in a fixed orientation, with the result that each new circuit of the moon brought Dick Gordon slightly west of his previous position. If he did nothing, then over the three and one-half hours that Conrad and Bean were on the moon, Yankee Clipper's orbit would shift far enough from the landing site to ruin the prospects for tomorrow's rendezvous. This 14-second firing would nudge Yankee Clipper into the proper orbit. By now, Gordon was very tired. Of course, test pilots were used to performing while fatigued, but he did not want to make a mistake with the whole world watching. Now, it was just him inside of Yankee Clipper, surrounded by a forest of switches and dials, doing a task that had been performed by three men on every previous lunar mission. As he prepared for the burn, he could hear Conrad and Bean going on excitedly about mounds and rocks, and the chatter was so incessant that it drowned out mission control, just when Ed Gibson was trying to read up crucial data on the burn. Gordon finally told Houston they needed to turn off the surface chatter while they were reading up data to him. He said it was impossible to hear with those guys yakking. Capcom Gibson finally had to tell Conrad and Bean to be quiet for a few minutes. And Pete Nail, uh, we'll be talking with uh, Yankee Clipper, giving him a maneuver pad for about the next five minutes. Very good. Let me see if I can chip some of that off, Pete, with this. It's my tool here. Yankee Clipper, you, know, you, you could work six or seven hours here. Everybody a bit. Man, here. Let's see if I can chip some of that off, Pete. 
Okay. We have the relay out, and we're okay. ready to give you the maneuver pad. Try to knock your piece of that off. Get the feeling that when that crater was made, it just threw out a big blob of dirt. This is where it landed. Yeah. up the break. Hey, you don't want, I wouldn't be surprised to find this is that, that micro brick shot. You ain't got any yeah. look at real hair. Yeah. Hey, let me get a picture. Pete and Al, Houston. That'll be a good. Go ahead. We're trying to get a maneuver pad up to uh, Clipper, and he's having a hard time copying it uh, with your talking in the background. Uh, could you? Could we have some silence for about uh, for about uh, five minutes while we get that pad up? Five minutes. Get that pad. Yep. Okay, we'll be right back with you. Hey, Clipper, Houston, are you ready to copy? After Gordon received all the data, he decided to be very cautious and read his checklist over the air as he performed it, so that the flight controllers could check his work. Finally, the engine lit, and he was slammed into his couch for 14 seconds. Another successful burn. Back on the lunar surface, Conrad and Bean were in the latter stages of their first moonwalk and a little unsure as to how much time they had left. Hello, Houston? Hell, Houston, go ahead. Okay, how long are you going to let us stay out? Feed, you'll be extended uh, 30 minutes, so you're out for a total of uh, four hours. And uh, it looks as though you're... Uh, and it looks as though we're going to have to uh, close off pretty much with the nominal plan and stand by. We have some words on the Traverse back. Okay. Standing over at the head crater. Where we start picking up some rocks, Pete? Yeah, we Most of the remaining moonwalk time was spent collecting rock samples, making surface observations such as the small mounds or hills, and taking pictures. But first, Houston sent them to the 1,000 foot crater, also known as the Middle Crescent Crater. Pete Nail, two things we'd like you to do on the Traverse on the way back. One is to uh, get samples and uh, some documentation of those mounds. And secondly, if you can, get over to the 1,000-foot uh, crater, which is northwest of the LCEP, and uh, get samples and documentation of that samples from there. 1,000-foot crater? So is that where we are? Is that that over there? You don't mean the head crater, do you? Let's get some of this mail, Dale. Okay. Negative. Uh, well, if you're a head crater now, we'll give you uh, we'll give you a radar vector. Stand by. is about 300 feet northwest of head crater. Oh, oh, I see it. You mean the great big one over here? That's affirmative. Okay. Yeah, we can go over there. Before the astronauts could reach the 1,000-foot crater, Houston told Conrad and Bean 
They wanted them back at the lunar module to start closeout in 10 minutes. To which Conrad said, quote, Holy Christmas, we're going to have to smoke there, Houston, end quote. Pete also commented about not getting many rocks going out that far. But when they made it to the crater, Pete could understand why Houston wanted it photographed. It was a spectacular monster crater. Roger, Roger, we're almost over to the thousand foot crater. Roger. Let me just leap over here a ways. 
Houston, we're looking down at this big crater now, and it uh, looks rather old. We're going to get some bedrock on it. I think it right? looks like uh, there's some boulders. big boulders that are resting inside the rim. Done on the rim like we see on a large crater that's further to the west by another thousand feet. Um, but uh, we don't see any outcroppings or rocks either that, uh, you know, that we could look down and say, well, from the top of the rim down to about 20 feet or something, then we come to the, the uh, uh, underlying rock. But there is this rock that's uh, uh, very large and not spread around. We're going to try to collect some of the samples. Hey, I'm going to get that. Roger, Al, we suggest you hustle. We show your three hours, three hours and 11 minutes. And we'd like you back there around uh, 17. Six more minutes. We're picking up a couple right now. We're on the way back. The astronauts found so many interesting rocks at the 1,000-foot crater, they couldn't resist picking them up, even though Houston was trying their best to hurry them along. The astronauts just kept finding more samples. It got to the point where they had to run back to the lunar module. And they found more samples on the run. Hey, drop it, my bag. Okay, you got anything else you want to put in your bag? Got to push another one over here. Okay, just a minute. A couple of big ones. Oh, I wish I could get that. Thank you. Try that. That's a good. Huh? Couple of nice ones right here. We copy. Uh, we suggest you start uh, smoking on back there. You're 313, and uh, I'd like you back there in four minutes. Okay, we're on our way. Let's go, Al. Hey, yeah. Let me ask you something. Mark, what? That's an interesting thing. Mark, I was looking at that rock. I'm the hill there. Beat by distance here because there's nothing but all the same. Yeah, I got it. Must have been 1,200, 1,300 feet, huh? At least. At least. You can travel a lot further than that. You know what? You can yep. really make a long trip. You've got a good long-term OPS. What do you figure out my strides are? 10 feet? No, I'd say your each, each foot only goes about, when you're running normal, I'd say you go about three or four feet, but you can just go indefinitely at this pace. Yeah. You don't get tired. You land flat-footed, then you just push off your toes, and let you go. Listen, when I get this rock box, I get some more rocks. Run us all around, we didn't get any rocks. Let's get some up here. Let's fill it. Yeah, Houston, we're approaching the ALSAP. Headed back to the lamp. Roger, Pete, we copy. Okay, let me get a photograph of it. Hurry. 
described it, quote, When backing up to take a photograph, I tripped over a rock partially hidden in the dust and couldn't turn fast enough and fell backward. It was not a hard fall, but now turning over and pushing up would require some extra effort, and Pete and I were always trying to conserve as much energy as we could for later use. Both times Pete was not far away, so he moved over to help me up. The first time, he extended his glove hand, and I grabbed his in mine, and we both pulled. I came up a lot faster than either of us anticipated, and we bumped. We both had to move fast to keep from falling. We laughed and got back to work. The second time, Pete just extended his first finger, and I interlocked his with mine. This time, he pulled a little more gently, and this time, it was a perfect assist. End quote. Wait a second. Wait a second. And? Good kill. Good kill. I hate to see it's an LMP laying on the lunar surface. Hey, what's that glass? Look at that. Son of a gun. I gotta have that. Finally, Conrad and Bean made it back to the lunar module and started the EVA-1 Close out procedure. Hey, hey, Houston, we're back at the lamp. Roger, Al. Pete, we copy. After you get finished with the core tube, Al, we'll have some instructions for you with the TV. Closeout activities continued. Houston called again for Al and Pete to hustle and get to the ladder in three minutes. Pete and Al, you're uh, three plus two six into the EVA. And uh, Al, we'd like you to hustle. We'd like you back there at the uh, bottom of the ladder in three minutes. I'll hustle. I'll hustle. Let me get your rock back before you get away. Okay, get that rock back. I'll go get this cord too. I think I can make it in three minutes. All right, wait just a minute. 
Houston had still not given up on the TV camera, but ultimately, all efforts to repair it failed. Before EVA-1, Moonwalk-1, could end, the astronauts needed to clean up their suits so all that dust wouldn't get inside of the lunar module. After that, Al Bean climbed the ladder and went in first. Next, Pete and Al used a conveyor to transfer the rock box to the lunar module cabin. Okay. 
Finally, it was Pete's turn to come inside the lunar module, thus ending Moonwalk 1. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 249 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 12, Moonwalk 1, Part 3. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. And in case you haven't noticed, I have added more episodes to the Archive podcast. We're now up 
to 54 episodes. The first 54 available on iTunes, Google Play, and all your favorite podcatchers. Just look for Space Rocket History Archive. We'll try to get some more up next month with the goal of catching up with the main podcast feed. Today, we salute my Patreon donors. Patreon donors give a small amount monthly to support the podcast. Thank you, Patreon donors, who honored your pledge this month. have several afterthoughts about this week's episode. First of all, I wanted to remind everyone to get your Tang or other orange-colored beverage ready. Every 50 episodes, we have a little fun celebrating the accomplishment with the Tang Ceremony. We will do this next week on episode 250, so get your tang ready. I want to credit my sources for this episode, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Rocket Man by Nancy Conrad, the Apollo 12 Flight Journal, and the Apollo 12 Lunar Surface Journal, and Apollo, an eyewitness account by Alan Bean. Now, relating to the episode I found a couple things kind of funny about this. Um, first of all, when Capcom told Al and Pete that uh, they needed to read up some data for Gordon in the command module and that he wasn't able to hear them, Al and Pete said, that's okay. But they just kept right on talking. <laughs> and uh, I guess they just couldn't get uh, the hint that, that uh, they needed to be quiet for a minute. Gordon up in the command module was getting kind of upset because he needed that data to do his burn. So uh, finally, Capcom had to just plain out tell Pete and Al that they needed silence on the radio. (laughs) And they're like, okay. (laughs) That was kind of funny, I thought. And uh, how about uh, Houston giving Pete and Al... 10 minutes to get to the 1,000-foot crater, take pictures, and get back to the lunar module. Then, of course, the astronauts find the most interesting rocks ever <laughs> along the way when they're trying to be in a hurry. Oh, we got to stop and get that one. Oh, look at that one. Oh, we got to get that one. So finally, they got in such a hurry that Al Bean falls down, and Pete helps him to his feet. Now, Here's something interesting about that. To commemorate that fall and uh, Pete's help, in 2008, Al Bean did a painting he called He Ain't Heavy, in which he shows himself on his back on the moon with Pete gripping his hand and pulling him up. If you're following me on Twitter and Facebook, you probably saw that picture because I did tweet it and post it this week. Now, I also have it on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. So if you want to see that picture of uh, Al's painting, it's really good. Check that out along with the audio for this episode and a ton of other things on the homepage. I was very pleased to receive several new donations to support the podcast over the past week. Stuart D. from Florida donated at the Orion level and earned his moon emoji. Mark E., Donated at the Mercury level. Chris D. Donated at the Mercury level. Martin G. Pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Peter Y. Pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Matthew M. Pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. J.T. 
increased his pledge on Patreon to the Gemini level, Bruce L. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level, and David M. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. That brings our total Patreons to 165, with a goal of reaching 218 for 2018. Now, the total donors so far this year have reached 226, with a goal of reaching 418 before the end of the year. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not yet donated in 2018, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded, and I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. All donors are rewarded with their names on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. For those of you who have already donated for 2018, I certainly appreciate it. have another item to give away this week. It is the official Space Rocket History logo vinyl refrigerator magnet. It has the picture of the official SRH logo with the rockets, and it is magnificent. <laughs> it's nice. It's pretty nice. I like it. Uh, I don't want to build too much hope for it, but it's pretty nice. To select the winners, Mrs. SRH gave each 2018 donor a number. Then she put the range at Google's random number generator and got the number four, and this one is very appropriate, <laughs> Pete Conrad. Yes, you heard it correctly. Pete Conrad. Not the astronaut. This is another Pete Conrad. But I thought that was really appropriate that he would be selected while we're doing Apollo 12. That's pretty cool. Okay, Pete, if you would email me, Mike, at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. I was pleased to see the podcast receive five new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past week, and I want to sincerely thank M. Delling for the very kind review and the five-star rating, and also the four others who gave the all-important five-star rating anonymously. If any of you are uh, enjoying the archive podcast, I would appreciate it if you could uh, give it a five-star rating as well, as it only has ten ratings over there. So it it needs a little love, I think. (laughs) So give it a a five-star if you can for the archive podcast. Thank you. Okay, that's all I have for this week. I hope to have the big episode 250 with the Tang Ceremony posted by next Thursday. So long for now.